Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email mov number two liv at gmail.com or connect with us on instagram and twitter both underscore mov number two liv we're excited to bring you these interviews and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you Welcome back to another edition of Moving to Live. We're back with part two of our interview with Dr. Philip Skiba. He is a sports medicine physician in the Chicago area. He is also a sports coach and consultant specializing in working with endurance athletes. For those of you who are running geeks, he was heavily involved with the Breaking Two Project, which was the project to attempt to break the two-hour marathon. If you were following that, you would notice that they just missed out less than a minute, which was still a significant decrease, and I'm sure he'll have some insight on that and some ideas for those of you who are out there and are endurance athletes or people who move. So, Dr. Skiba, thank you for joining uh, Moving to Live for part two of our interview. Thanks, Ben. I think what you hit on in part one of your interview that I thought was especially pertinent and people need to remember is if you move, you're an athlete and you were describing in your medical practice that you see everybody from six-year-old gymnasts to 80-plus-year-old uh, ladies who want to do gardening and they hurt. And I think the tendency is for people to downplay what they do or their activity. I interviewed somebody a few weeks ago for my other podcast, FitLab PGH, and before the interview, she said, well, I don't really move that much, and I'm not really an athlete like the people you deal with. And when I asked her what she did, she says, well, I either walk on the treadmill for 30 to 45 minutes, or I swim for 30 to 45 minutes every day, and I dance as often as possible. And I think under your definition of an athlete, and something that I agree with too, this is somebody that I suspect you would agree if all of your patients did that much activity, you would be happy. Exactly. You know, exercise is medicine. And this has been a huge push by the ACSM over the last several years. Um, but, you know, I, I tell people this all the time. And they always look at me wide-eyed like it blows their mind when I tell them. You know, if I give you an aspirin to help try and prevent, you know, lower your risk of a stroke or a heart attack or something, I improve your chances by a couple of percent. If I get you to exercise about 150 minutes a week, divide it up however you like, um, I reduce your risk of death from everything, from cancer to heart disease to stroke, by 50 to 70%, depending on whose data you believe. There's no pill that can do that. 
Um, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly important to move. You know, when you use the machine the right way, good things happen. And when you leave it out in the field and let it rust, bad things happen. And, and the, the body is no different. I was just listening to a podcast earlier this week, and I forget which one it was, but the premise of that particular episode was one of the best things you could do for your health is to get a dog because it would get you out the door and walking at times that you didn't want to walk. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I kind of joke with that. I have two Labradors and I am quite active, but living in Western Pennsylvania, when it's snowy and it's cold and it's uh sleeting, I might not want to go outside, but that's when they want to go outside. So they forced me to go outside and I I kind of uh, agree with the premise of the podcast I was listening to. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you were describing in the first part of the interview how you got to uh, sports medicine, and I thought it was interesting. You described that not all sports medicine problems are orthopedic, and you began to touch on how your coaching program developed and how you got to the point where you were dealing with Olympic-level athletes. And I think it's important to emphasize for anybody who's a young coach who's listening to this or somebody who's a student or even somebody who's an athlete who thinks, well, you know, I can run pretty well so I can be a coach or I'm a pretty good triathlete so I can be a coach, is that you started out basically volunteering your time to friends saying, hey, I think my, my plan can help you or they would approach you because you were a fairly good swimmer. Is that a correct representation? Basically, yeah. Um, you know, look at, looking at, um, you know, it's like medicine when you're, you know, when you're a medical student, when you're an intern, you know, crap rolls downhill and you're at the bottom. Um, and so you, you know, your job is basically to take care of whatever you can take care of. And so for me early on, like it was volunteering my time. It was helping people. I I thought maybe, you know, I, I could help. Um, and it was only later that, you know, I started, I started realizing where the real holes in the field were. So really early on in my, in my coaching career, I, I wrote a book called scientific training for triathletes, which I'm about to launch the second edition of that book. Um, it's been out of print for a year or two. Um, and, uh, you know, I, um, I, I wrote this because I wanted people just to have a basic framework for understanding training. So that's the biggest problem I've seen in the sport in, in doing a lot of, um, you know, do a lot of lecturing and a lot, and a lot of teaching. And, um, you know, people just, they read things on the internet and, and they think it's real and it's just, it's just not. I, um, I interviewed Leslie Bonsi for FitLab Pittsburgh a few months back as a nutritionist and she refers to that as blog clog. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it, I think. There's a lot of information out there. There, the internet is has been good and has been bad. It's enabled me to contact you and interview and get you, get your thoughts and from when you're describing when you were starting out with the coaching and the identification of the misinformation, the internet was literally in its infancy. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because that's really one of the things that inspired me, you know, being on some of the triathlon message boards and stuff and reading just, you know, kind of complete nonsense and reading it from people that were arguably quote unquote leaders in the field. Um, why? Because they were the first ones out there. Um, and that's how they became the authority rather than actually knowing stuff. Um, and so, and so for me, it was, you know, and, and this is one of the problems with coaching is that if you happen to be first, that's a huge advantage. If you happen to have been a formerly a great athlete, um, you know, that, that, that turns out to be a great advantage. Um, and I often tell people don't equate athletic success with success as a coach. The two things require very different skill sets. Um, and sometimes I think being a great athlete, um, actually is a hindrance, you know, great athletes, are, you know, and you know, this as a physiologist, 85% of that is genetically determined. 
So the best thing this person ever did was pick the right parents. Um, so, so your problem in that situation is that people who are naturally that gifted, they don't get that everybody isn't like them. Um, and you know, and, and this is, you know, when I was training a lot of my, my professional triathletes, they'd say to me, Hey doc, come on, let's go out for a, let's go out for a run. And I'm like, you, you realize that your recovery run pace is my 5k PR pace, right? <laughs> you know, and they just look at me like that's, how can that possibly be? But it's the truth. Um, and so that's the challenge is making people understand that, you know, just cause this guy was a great Ironman or this guy was a great, you know, marathon runner. They may not be a great coach. It takes something different. I think from what you were saying in the last couple of minutes, you probably are referring at least initially with a lot of the misinformation back in the triathlon forum, rec sport triathlon. Am I correct? <laughs> it was, yeah. Rec sport triathlon for sure. And some of the message boards that came, came immediately afterwards, but yeah, it's, it was it's, out there. <laughs> it's, a, it's actually funny. Uh, a few months ago, I interviewed Sam Callen, who's at USA fencing, who also oh, used, who he's used to post on that. And, <laughs> yeah. and when I, and when I contacted Sam, it was literally, uh, he goes, well, how did you hear of me? And I said, well, I remember reading, reading you when I was in grad school at Rec Sport Triathlon. It was, he goes, that was a blast from the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No fooling. So there's all this misinformation out there. You're a medical doctor, but you've also been coaching. And you went and you got a doctorate in exercise physiology. But you mentioned in the first interview that you developed some mathematical equations to help with the training. I know this podcast is much too short to cover that in detail, but kind of a synopsis or how exactly does somebody who's maybe a young coach or a student think about using equations to help with developing training programs? Yeah, It's actually not that complicated because the math mirrors what you know about you know, about physiology, even just about performance. If you've ever done any kind of, um, uh, any kind of sports yourself, you know, so for example, um, everyone talks about the quote unquote threshold. I did a threshold run. I'm doing threshold intervals or whatever. Um, it, it turns out that that what they're feeling is something called critical power or critical speed, which is the subject of my PhD dissertation. And it can be easily figured out with Microsoft Excel or a pocket calculator. Um, and, and what that does is allows you to figure out, mathematically speaking, where is this threshold? Because that's the most important line. Above that line, you get tired really quickly and in a very predictable way. Below that line, you can go for maybe hours. Um, and, and so just so you start out very small like that and realizing, wow, just this little bit of math that I learned in high school could be hugely important in terms of writing them up too early. Um, and then as you get a little bit more advanced, um, what you find is that when you work above that threshold, the amount of work you can do is very nicely defined. It's like a battery. And you can use it really quickly by exercising real hard or doing real hard intervals. Or you can do easier intervals or a slightly you know, slower pace and last a lot longer. But in both cases, the same amount of energy is there. You just decided how to distribute it differently. I think you touched on this a little bit in the first interview when you described how you started working with Joanne Zeiger and the fact that she had the engine of a thoroughbred. Yes. How, how do these equations work with there are some people who have the biomechanics of a plow horse and the engineering of a, or the plumbing of a thoroughbred? How does that yeah. work versus somebody who is able to train at a very, very high volume and their musculoskeletal system can, can withstand that force also. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the, and this is where the, it's nice about being a doctor 
is that you, you see patterns in different kinds of body types um, and, and things like that. And there is a population of people out there that have really big engines, but their bodies are just not built for that. Um, my, my biggest job as a coach and as a doctor, frankly, is holding those people back, you know, is using these equations and things to say, hey, look, um, you know, we don't need to go there yet. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, we use things like GPS monitors and power meters, not to make people do harder work, but to make them do easier work, more appropriate work. Um, you know, I, you know, I, when you talk about, you know, people using power meters on bicycles, I call them stupid meters. You know, this, this is the way to keep you from doing anything silly. Um, these are, these are the parameters I need you to keep your workout within to make sure we don't overtrain you or we don't give you an overuse injury or things like that. Um, and it's true that as people get better and better, they need those tools less and less. Um, I think they're valuable in that they help people calibrate their effort. You know, I'll bring someone in who doesn't really, hasn't done a lot of exercise in the past and we'll be doing a VO2 max test or something. Um, you know, they've barely elevated their heart rate and I'll ask them, you know, on a scale, you know, what's your RPE? And they'll be like, Oh, I'm at like a 10 out of 10. I'm like, you're not sweating. <laughs> you know, but they don't get it because they've never done any real exercise. You, know, you get someone who's sitting on the bike for the first time and they're, what's this clear liquid coming out of my skin? Am I bleeding? You know, tell my wife, I love her. I'm not going to make it. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it, so it's challenging, but, but using these kind of tools and using these kinds of equations, we help people understand the way their bodies work and they understand the, the sort of the natural feelings that come along with exercise. Um, and, and to a point where then they don't necessarily need it anymore. By the time we were finished working together, I could say to Joanna, you know, cover up your power meter, ride 300 watts. And she could do it within a watt or two, you know, um, because once you finally calibrated those, those kind of those sensations and understand how your body works, then you can prevent yourself from getting injured. Um, you can keep yourself within reasonable ranges. It sounds like in a slightly more complicated way, it's like the good swimmer who you can blindfold and they can swim a thousand yards and flip turn perfectly every time because they know how many strokes it takes them to go the length of the pool. Yeah, exactly. And that's what you hope to develop in people. And, you know, it's funny because, again, when you're dealing with really, really elite athletes, um, even sometimes they haven't fully developed this. They just, you know, they know they've got this superior physiology and I can just kind of do whatever. Um, and so, and so in some places we're able to make, you know, really good inroads, even with great athletes, you know, like the breaking two guys, um, and say, Hey, yeah, you're, you're literally the fat, almost the fastest in the world or the fastest in the world. Here's how we can tweak this or that. Um, and, 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 uh, and really, you know, get big, get, get big benefits. It's interesting that you say that I teach uh, exercise physiology. And one of the comments I often make to my students is, when you read about a professional athlete or an elite level athlete's training program, rather than saying, oh, I need to do something like that, realize that essentially maybe they can do whatever they want and have that level of success. And those athletes who get to that super level of success, for example, the ones involved in breaking two, rather than just doing whatever training, use the experts. So it's not so much what the training you do, but how the training is delivered. Correct. And, and delivering the training that is correct for you. I mean, in, in working in elite level triathlon in particular, I have found so many people who succeeded in spite of their training, not because of it. Um, and, and that's, and that surprises them, you know, like, but this is just, yeah, but you just did it that way. It doesn't mean that doing it a different way might not be better or worse for that matter. You don't know until you try it. 
And I know for the many age group triathletes, it's the long bike on Saturday, long run on Sunday, and that's just what you do. So I would imagine telling them to change their training program is similar to what you were talking about with Joanne Zeiger when you said, we're going to reduce your training and change it. Yeah. And, 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 and there is a danger to that, right? Um, you know, someone once came to me with a, with a, you know, the coach of a, um, a world champion, world record holding athlete and said, I want you to take over the training. And I said, absolutely not. And he looked at me, he was like, don't you see, don't you understand this opportunity that I'm giving you? I said, I understand perfectly that I'm going to screw up one of the fastest people alive. Um, you know, this person is already, already holds the world record already, uh, has several world championships under their belt. Um, what, why in the world would I mess with this? You know, um, it's just, uh, as a physician and as a coach, I'm a kind of a conservative guy. Um, I don't easily decide, Hey, let's just throw everything up in the air and change it around. If something works, it works. Um, so I, I, I think that's important, you know, is that, um, you should not be enforcing any particular dogma on the athlete. It is your job to figure out what works for the athlete and then do that. Even if it's not, um, what's perfectly appropriate, you know, and for, for my own training, I'm, I'm a great example of that. Um, intense training is hugely valuable, um, in terms of developing, you know, uh, lactate threshold, critical power, um, VO2 max in the relatively short term. It turns out that I don't respond very well to intensity. Um, and I discovered this over years of training, but then also formally quantified it while I was working on my PhD. Cause I could just sit on the ergometer every other day. Um, and then connect myself to the, to the metabolic cart and figure it out. Um, and so these workouts that were making other people have a pop in their VO2 max of 15 or 20% did not move the needle for me at all. Um, and I'm just not responding to it. I then go ahead and start doing just some long, uh, endurance training, you know, put, put in, putting in several hours biking and running very little intensity, go back into the lab, get back on the cart after a couple of months, my absolute VO2 max has gone up by almost a liter. Um, which is a huge, huge, you know, jump. Um, so it's now, if I looked at me and my background as a volleyball player, as a power athlete, I'd say, this is a guy we had need to hit with a lot of intensity, except when you actually do the science, that's not what I respond to. Um, but a lot of coaches would have really screwed me up, um, looking at me and assuming certain things or enforcing a certain dogma on me. When in fact, that's not what would have been appropriate for my physiology. I think, what you said is interesting and it interacts very well with some of the other people that I've interviewed. I mentioned Sam Callen earlier in my interview with him. He described an athlete that he was training who followed his training program except for the workouts that had 20-minute threshold uh, tempo runs. And she just wouldn't follow them, wouldn't follow them. She, he'd get the uh, the records and finally ask her. And she said, I just can't concentrate for that 20 minutes. I just I get flustered. So he switched it to rather than two by 20, four by 10, and suddenly she was able to follow. And his take-home message, which sounds similar to yours, is she's getting the same amount of work and we're going to get the same thing at a program that she's able and willing to follow. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's part of it too, is like, you know, nothing is less valuable than the workout you don't do. <laughs> um, you know, and, and that's, and that's, and it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I used to coach a really good, um, uh, European, uh, European triathlete. Um, and, and this guy, you know, I, I'd, I'd set up a bunch of workouts for the week and he'd call me and I'd say, okay, so what'd you do? He'd say, yeah, you know, I didn't feel like doing that. So I did this instead. And, you know, um, and, and it's just, uh, and, and really, and, and I, you know, and, and I, um, uh, I, one of the reasons I think I've had much more success with, um, 
with, with female athletes than male athletes is that it's way, uh, for some reason, women seem to be able to disengage their ego and figure out what's going to be the right, what's going to be the right thing to do and talk about it and figure it out and let's do that. Whereas guys often have this macho need to, you know, um, I know there's only three or four intervals written, but I need to do 10 intervals. You know, I know you only wrote 10 by 400, but I need to run, run 16 by 400. Um, and things just kind of go off the rails from there. <laughs> we talked a little bit, uh, before we started recording about the uptick in patience that you see is the few weeks or few months before the Chicago marathon. And I know marathons are huge now. I recently read an article in the Pittsburgh paper that, uh, for the, for all of the races at the Pittsburgh marathon coming up in May, they expect 40,000 people. So if somebody is a, a runner listening to this and they're going, you know, I'm going to run a marathon or I'd like to run a marathon. Obviously, they're not going to hire you to coach them, but if you could, <laughs> if you could just offer one or two pieces of information, because I know there are a lot of people who hang out their shingle as a coach simply because either they love to run or somebody says, oh, you can coach me. So if you could just offer one or two pieces of information that might work across the spectrum for people who maybe aren't elite, but need a little bit of advice so they don't have to go see a sports medicine physician. Yeah. Um. You know, the first thing is, is to be um, brutally honest with yourself, you know, um, and, and what do I mean by that? Um, you know, step outside yourself and say, you know, if I was, if my friend told me they were going to do this, how would I advise them? You know, and, um, you know, so for me, that's, you know, and so I often tell people, you, you want to do a marathon? That's great. Spend a few years running 5Ks and then 10Ks and then half marathons. And so you can really decide if this is for you, number one. Um, and, uh, and number two, um, be willing to listen to your body. When you are sore enough that you don't want to get out of bed, um, when you've got strange, you know, pains that, that, that come and, and don't go away right away, um, you know, listen to that um, and obey it and figure out what's causing it. Um, you know, th there's no there's no more false mantra than than uh than no pain no gain right? that's how people get in trouble um that's what you have to do is respect your body i think i'm fortunate that and given the profession that i'm in that i have a vast wealth of people either that i know or somebody knows somebody who knows so that if i was looking for a coach in a certain area to coach me i could contact you or contact uh, sam callen or somebody and they would offer that but for somebody who's out there who's listening to this because they're a movement aficionado and they're just not in the field what should they look for to find a qualified endurance coach to say, okay, maybe this person doesn't match with me psychologically, but I know that at least at the base level, they have good information and they're not going to hurt me. Yeah. Um, number one, talk to people that they have coached and look at, and look at the results. And that doesn't mean, wow, hey, look at this guy. He helped train Elliot Kipchoge. He can train me for a marathon. That's not the way to do it. Look for people like you that this person has trained who have done well. So, and, and then see, okay, so I am a, uh, you know, let's say I'm a 45 year old father of four. I have three hours a week to train. Um, I want to run my first 10 K. Um, how many people like me has this guy coached and how did they do? How did they improve? Were they injured? Um, and that's really what you could, that's the only thing you can really judge people on is their results. You know how, and, and, you know, like for myself, one of the things I'm proud with is I've had uh, proud of is that, I've had results with little old ladies doing triathlons and I've had great results with literally the fastest man alive. 
Um, and, and so, so what I'm looking for in someone is, can they help a kind of athlete that I'm trying to send to them? And for you specifically, what is the type of athlete, uh, personality wise that, uh, you work best with? Personality wise, it's gotta be someone that's willing to take advice. Um, you know, I just, I'm not here to just talk to you and have you not, um, not buy in and, 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 uh, and, and do it. So you really have to be willing to number one, put in the work. Um, and, and number two, um, be willing to do things a different way. Um, I'm not here to tell you, oh, just keep doing what you're doing. Typically, um, there are people who I find that with, um, but in general, it's gotta be someone that's willing to think differently. That's willing to work based on logic and reason and, and, and science and not purely based on emotion or knee jerk, you know, oh my God, I saw my competitor on this website and here are the workouts they're doing. I need to do workouts like that. Um, you know, and, and cause, cause really, I mean, just as an aside, I see what great athletes post online claiming that they do. And I actually look at those people's training logs as, you know, as a coach, either publicly or privately. Um, and they're not doing what they're telling the world that they're doing. <laughs> you know, would sure, you, you, would sure you, you swam, you know, six, you, you swam six hours last week. Uh, if you include driving to and from the pool and, all the smoothies you made, you know, would you, um, would you say that the training plans that you see written up and published on the lay publications, the blogs, the triathlon websites, the running websites are probably inflated by 20 or 25% or even more at least. Um, yeah, it's, you know, and don't get me wrong. There, there are people who put an Epic training. I mean, when I first got to Kenya, went to Elliot Kipchoge's very first track workout of the season and he did 16 by 1200 at 4:30 per mile pace. Okay. <laughs> like that was, um, that's epic training. Okay. He's also the fastest man alive. Um, you know, but, uh, but yeah, the stuff you read in magazines, like do not buy into that stuff. I mean, most of it is nonsense. I think the final thing I want to talk to you with about, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to moving to live is your involvement with breaking too, because I followed that uh, fairly closely when it was going on just out of curiosity. Could somebody actually, break two hours. And I know absolutely. We, absolutely. I mean, just based on the modeling, we would have done it if it had been about two degrees cooler, probably. <laughs> um, literally that's all it takes is, uh, is just making, is, is, is we're right on the cusp. It's, it's a very small change that's required. And I think a lot of people who are following it, at least if you're reading in some of the lay publications, they were downplaying or saying, well, there have pacers and it's not an official race. And whereas, am I correct in saying this was more looked upon as a physiological experiment? Can somebody physiologically do it if all the parameters are in place to do it well? Exactly. That, that's exactly, this was a giant science experiment. And, and fortunately we had Nike to bankroll it. Um, you, know, they, you know, they were interested and it was like, okay, let's, let's figure that, let's figure this out. Let's optimize everything and say, can we engineer this performance? It's kind of like in the late nineties and early two thousands when Chris Boardman, uh, was yes. working on breaking the hour record. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, part of the thing about this is that we have to decide what we want to believe is, um, is unfair assistance versus, um, versus just the, the progression of, of life. You know, look at Roger Bannister. Um, you know, people had a problem with his four minute mile because he had, you know, pacers and things. Um, and now we accept that that was fine, you know? So if you've got pacers for the four minute mile, why isn't it appropriate for the marathon? Um, you know, I think we, we make these arbitrary rules, you know, but, but at the end of the day, the question is, can, can a human being tolerate this? And I think we showed we, we were off by less than one second per mile, 
that's all it would have taken to break two hours. Um, and, and so I think that clearly shows it's possible. What is your modeling show that if in perfect conditions somebody could run? Um, with, with all things being perfectly optimal, it, it's physiologically possible probably to be in the one four, in the one fifty eight range. Um, you know that person might not have been born yet, um, and there's things we still don't understand. The thing we most have the biggest problem understanding is changes in exercise economy. In other words, if you run at a constant pace, your oxygen use, provided you're running easily enough, will stay relatively constant, and that's your economy. How much oxygen does it cost me to run at this speed? Well, that changes with distance and time and pace. Um, and so what we don't understand is, you know, we studied these guys on the treadmill running for, you know, for, for quite some time, looking at the way their oxygen use trended and stuff like that. But I can't make Elliot run for two hours on the treadmill and just see what happens to him. Um, you know, what we know is that for 20 or 30 minutes, here's what happens to him. Um, but we don't know down the road, you know, how does that change? And we know that the shoes give a certain improvement in exercise economy, about 4%. But again, is it still 4% after 30K or 40K? I don't know the answer to that question. This is, as you said, a big science experiment, but if you are an endurance aficionado, this was this is a pretty big deal as far as just somebody to follow along. How did you get the opportunity to be involved with uh, Breaking 2? Yeah, you know, I because of all this modeling work I had done, um, you know, the difference between me and a lot of people in, in, in our field is that all the major developments I've ever made, I published. Um, now, that's a little bit different now working for Nike is I'm not allowed to reveal everything I develop. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of breaking two, but, you know, the lion's share of it, um, that was all stuff that I published. And so the guys that, you know, the guys that were working at Nike in particular, Brett uh, Kirby and Brad Wilkins, um, who are great scientists in their own right, like they were able to look at that and say, holy, wow, look at this, you know, this, this is the guy we need. Like he really, he did the work. He showed how it works. He, you know, he, he showed his work. Um, we know this is real. It was published. Um, and so for me, it was nice because they looked at me as here's a physician who has published, you know, groundbreaking work in this field. I mean, these equations are now available on, on the Garmin, you know, you can get it from the Garmin app store. Um, and, uh, and they said, yeah, okay. This, this, and he works with elite athletes. This might be a good guy to have on board. Um, and so that, that, for me, that's just how it happened is that's been kind of word of mouth as I developed these things. Somebody's listening to this. They're an amateur runner. They kind of watched the documentary and said, that's kind of interesting. Is there any information that you took away from that that you use with your age group athletes or non-elite athletes that, wow, this really helped me with my train with my programming? You know, um, it, it was really just applying the stuff um, in large measure that I'd already developed. Um, but it, it's also, um, if there's one thing I could say about, about working with these guys um, is that, um, you, you cannot discount the mental aspect of training. Um, you know, when you watch, when you watch breaking two and you listen to Elliot talk, it's like listening to master Yoda or something, right? Um, you know, he talks in riddles half the time. Um, you know, but what you're seeing there is a man who has tamed his own ego, who has tamed his own inner voice, um, to be this source of sort of, of positive self-talk, um, and encouragement. Um, and you know, you, you see, you talked to Elliot, of course it's possible. Why wouldn't it be possible? You know, it, it didn't occur to him that it wasn't possible. And that kind of refers to the working with an athlete who buys into what you say. Yeah, exactly. You know, is that you both have to believe in the process and, and the athlete truly has to believe in themselves. You, you would not, you, know, you would believe, but most people would not believe the amount of negative self-talk that goes on, even with elite athletes. Um, and you realize that, you know, there's, 
at, that these guys, even at the pointy end of the field, just like you and me, um, there is an element of self-loathing there. Why am I not stronger? Why am I not faster? Um, I should be stronger than this. I should be faster than this. Um, and part of it as a coach, and this is the art of coaching, is learning how to turn that voice around in the person's head. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, uh, not to be too, you know, Stuart Smalley, but, uh, you know, to be able to say, you know, yeah, you know, I am strong enough. I am fast enough. I can do this. I, th I think some of the advice that you've given is excellent. I know we ask you to fill out a questionnaire prior to the interview. And one of the questions we ask everybody, is there one recovery or self-care practice you consider essential? And your answer was avoid ne negative self-talk after perceived negative outcomes. And I think especially with so much information available on the internet and so many people, uh, rather than building themselves up or saying, this is what I do, they knock other people down. I think that's information that's invaluable for a young professional or even an experienced professional to remember. Yeah. You know, I think the, the real story of breaking too, it's great that Elliot ran as fast as he did. It was, it was truly, it was monu a monumental effort. Um, I think people don't pay enough attention to Zerzne, to Desi and Lisa DeSisa for different reasons. Um, you know, Zerzne, he's the guy He's run not only the fastest, but the fast, the two fastest half marathons ever, right? He holds the world record. Um, he's, he's a monster, but he never ran a good marathon. Um, well, in breaking two, we lowered his personal best by almost five minutes. <laughs> you know, now think about that for a second. We took five minutes off the marathon time of a guy who was literally the fastest half marathon runner in history. Um, and, and so, and, and that shows you making small changes and being willing to make them and, uh, that what that can do. Um, almost more so than seeing someone run a marathon in two hours and 25 seconds. Obviously the ultimate goal of breaking two was to break two hours, just missed out less than a minute, even with not breaking it overall, looking back, do you think this was success because we lowered the time we learned or expanded our knowledge base? Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things we talked about, um, was that, you know, our, our, our great fear as we all decided, you know, myself and Andy and, and everyone else who came on as consultants to this project, our great fear was that people would look at it as a failure if we didn't break two hours. Um, and, uh, and fortunately I think people got the message. Um, we, ex the amount of insight that we got from training these guys and, and observing their physiology and, and knowing all their workouts and, and observing it firsthand in Africa, uh, hugely important. Um, the fact that we took the world best down to two hours and 25 seconds, um, in one shot, uh, again, hugely important, huge insights available there. Um, so for me, um, I, I think, you know, it would have been great, you know, it would have been a great ending to the story if we had broken two hours. Um, you know, you can't control everything. You can't control the rain. You can't control the wind. You can't control the temperature. And am um, I correct? You, you said know. a few minutes ago, literally two degrees cooler. You think the record would have fallen? Yeah, probably. Or just, you know, a very small change in wind <laughs> is literally all it would have taken. Um, you know, sometimes you just have bad luck, but that's racing. We've had the great opportunity to talk to Dr. Phil Skiba. He is a sports medicine physician, a coach, and was heavily involved with Breaking 2. I think the best thing about talking to Phil is realizing that you have to start at the bottom. And he describes his coaching as starting just helping his friends. And I really think that he has some valuable information. Dr. Skiba, if you could just leave the Moving to Live listeners, uh, somebody who maybe is a young professional or a student, any advice for somebody who's looking for a career as a sports coach or a sports medicine physician? You know, my, my thing is this, 
decide what you want to be the best in the world at, what that niche is, and then do whatever it takes to make that happen. Um, you know, in my background, I ended up going through medical school, residency, doing a fellowship in sports medicine. And then at the time when, you know, I just got this amazing salary as an attending doctor, quitting and going back and doing my PhD and developing what I had to do. This is, this is what it took um, to, to get to where I needed to be to do what I wanted to do. Um, and so decide whatever it is that you need to do and, and sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice um, to make it happen. Um, and never, ever give up because there are way more setbacks than triumphs. Um, and you just, you just got to be prepared for that. Great advice from Dr. Skiba. He is the owner of Fizz Farm and a physician. We'll have extensive show notes. Dr. Skiba, I want to thank you for talking to Moving to Live. I think you've given some great information, and I enjoyed getting to know you better. Hey, thanks, Ben. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.